and welcome to this episode of Star Wars Universe Podcast. For many of us, one day we were watching Rebels, we were enjoying things, we saw a red lightsaber blade turn into a helicopter, and we thought, where did these Inquisitors come from? Well, we've gotten a little more of them, bits and pieces, in TV shows, movies, animated and live action, but we've never really gotten to see from the point of view of the Inquisitors. That is until last month when Rise of the Red Blade was published, a new Star Wars novel that tells the story of the... Uh, that tells the story of how someone becomes an Inquisitor, lets us look inside it, and really tells us an awful lot, not only about the Inquisitors, but about the Jedi themselves. We're going to be talking about that book today with Danielle, written in the Star Wars. Danielle, how are we doing today? I'm great. I'm excited to talk about this book. It was probably one of my uh, favorite Star Wars books published um, within the past year, aside from The High Republic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And like I said, it's one that I think I'm going to be quoting a lot because it it confirms a lot of things that I have been thinking about for a while as well as gives some new ideas about it. I should just say the full name of it, by the way, is Inquisitor, Rise of the Red Blade. Uh, it's a novel written by Delilah Dawson. And I guess this is the terminology we use. It's called an adult novel, which unfortunately in our world I think means something <laughs> kind of different. That just means that it's not a young adult novel. It's, um, you know, it's for all ages. Well, you know, there's some people who probably it'll be a little bit older for, but um, if you're the kind of person listening to this podcast, you're probably reading those novels when you were eight or ten years old anyway, but it's not YA. I think all that really uh, can say about that. And it's only been out for a month or so. We will have some spoilers of the book. Uh, I'm going to have a link in my show notes to a way to buy the book while supporting this podcast and getting it from a, a great bookstore that's not one of the big chains. So if you want to hit pause, read the book, and then come back, it is a wonderful book. But if you haven't read the book or you have read it and you just, you know, want to hear about it, you're just as welcome to. Don't worry about that. Uh, we're going to give a plot summary, but let me kind of just start. Uh, at first, we're going to have all the spoilers all along, but let me just start kind of in general. Danielle, what do you love about this book? I really liked that it's a perspective that we haven't really seen before when it comes to a Clone Wars era Jedi. And mm-hmm. um, it that made it both really fascinating and difficult to read. I think that yeah. it is a very intelligent Star Wars book. It is a very um, difficult book that requires you to think and to separate yourself from a lot of stuff um, mm-hmm. and, and and question a lot of things, um, yeah. both about what you think and about what the character thinks. And yeah. I really liked that. It didn't just ask you to follow the story along. It asked you to really engage with it. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to put it. First of all, because it is completely first-person narrative. Uh, I don't, I, you know, I'm sorry. It's written as third-person narrative, but it's very much it is only showing us the perspective of the main character, who is uh, Iskot Akaris, uh, who starts as a Padawan and spoilers becomes an Inquisitor. And it, uh, Danielle and I, over on my other podcast, Superhero Ethics, recently did a great episode about the Hunger Games. We talked about how. The books being specifically from Katniss's perspective are a little bit different from the movies because, like any first-person narrative, she is an unreliable narrator. She's telling us things through the coloration of how she is seeing them, and that's awesome, Because, but it, but it requires a little bit of like, okay, everything she says isn't necessarily the truth. It's her understanding of the truth in that moment. I think in the same way with Ishkot, and I think one of the great things about the book is it it shows you her slowly falling more and more to the dark side, and it, and so she becomes, I think, less and less of a reliable narrator in many ways. But at the same way, she's also seeing things that 
we that are pretty accurate that we don't often like to talk about with a Jedi. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love what you said about it being an intelligent book. I think there's definitely that. And also, and I, I think there's just kind of extrapolating on what you were saying. I think right now in our fandom, it, it's very easy to either be like, oh, the Jedi were great and just people like Anakin and Barriss were just terrible, or the Jedi were awful and bad and everything they did was wrong. And so, of course, you had people fall to the dark side. And I think you can kind of use this book almost to justify either one of those arguments. Yeah. And the truth is that, no, it's somewhere in between where there were some great things happening. There were some real problems and Iscott makes her own decisions, but some of her mentors and, and fa- people failed her in some pretty obvious ways. And it it just it's a very complicated book that doesn't lend itself to, to, to simple answers. Yeah, I agree. Um, one thing I, I actually made a note of when I read it was I'm worried about how certain parts of the fandom are going to use this <laughs> um, uh-huh. uh, for mainly for like a strong, strong anti-Jedi sentiment, um, which goes way beyond what I think is is necessary. Um, yeah. And and I do I did have a couple of issues with the book. Main none that made it like a bad book to me. Obviously, is I, I enjoyed mm-hmm. it greatly, and I think it's a wonderful addition to Star Wars canon. But there were times where I I questioned if it was Iscat's bias I was reading or the author's. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were certain lines that I feel like were crossed a little bit um, in that regard. But I I don't know because I do have my own biases, so it could be my own biases yeah. talking. And I did write that in my note. I, I don't know what it is. But I kind of like that about the book that I don't know what it is because it does make me question. It makes me uncomfortable and uh, puts me outside of my, you know, outside of my comfort zone. And I feel like really good books do that mm-hmm. and they do it well. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's really true. And I think that, as we probably established, neither you nor I is going to be on those extremes of fandom. But even kind of within a broad middle ground, I'm probably a little more anti-Jedi than you are, and you're probably a little more pro-Jedi than I am. Mm -hmm. I think that's come out in some of the earlier discussions. And so that'll be a really interesting part of this conversation. So let me give kind of a plot summary, and I'm going to skip over a lot of the details. But I, I, because I think, as I said, this isn't a, a book review as much as it's talking about these issues that we're getting into. So Iscott starts out as a young Padawan. I think she's kind of a teenager. She's like, I think she's 16 when the book starts. And she's the Padawan of someone called Sember Vey, uh, who I think, I think these are people who are newly introduced to us. But anytime that's wrong, Danielle, please let me know. Because we certainly do meet some characters who we've seen at, uh, on screen or in any of the books at various points. And Sembrave is very much on the academic side. Like, this is someone who would get along well with uh, Yacosta, the librarian. We actually find that she does. And her main role within the Jedi, and I I like this because, again, it's the kind of thing that we don't see explored because it doesn't lead to great lightsaber fights. (laughs) She's an archivist and she's an explorer. Um, She's sort of the ethical version of Indiana Jones (laughs) in that what she's doing is going out and searching the galaxy for interesting relics that can be brought back to the uh, Jedi Temple. And um, and so she goes out and she, neg- she half of it is kind of like research and finding these things, but half of it is sitting over a cup of whatever hot beverage is fo- they're fond of on that particular planet and negotiating for this particular thing. And Iscott enjoys this and, and respects her, but is also really chomping at the bit, especially because Sember is very much the... You know, I expect you to be 
the best praise I can give you is to not say anything because it means I don't have anything to find critique with. But she's not very warm. She doesn't give praise or things like that. And Iscott is really struggling with this because she's doubting herself a lot. And she clearly has a lot of emotion that she's really having trouble meditating and adapting to the kind of Jedi ideas of just meditate and just, you know, get through it. And there's... She also clearly really loves fighting. She loves sparring with people, but people are afraid to do so because at one point earlier in her past, when she was younger, uh, an altercation happened and she wound up, without really meaning to, using the force to pull a column down on her best friend that wound up being a, um, a terribly hurting her and having her leave the Jedi. So she's got all this guilt and you know self-doubt. A lot of people don't uh, have a lot of questions about her and she's not getting any positive reinforcement ever um and and as we they do a really good job of showing us kind of like that things are starting to happen in the galaxy with the padawans that things are starting to get nervous and and worried up to a scene you know about a, a third of the way through the book or so where all of them are called together and said we have to go to this planet called geonosis because we're suddenly at war and it's this kind of big shock no one's really ready for it she goes to geonosis she takes part in the battle uh, although they, they – basically she's in a – there are people outside the – she's not in the battle that we see for the most part. She's in the – outside the arena taking care of some other things, but she's watching the arena. We get a lot more detail. Like I think in the movie it's left kind of unclear. But in this book's perspective at least, like the Jedi won in that they rescued their three um, the three people who were there, Anakin, Padme, and Obi-Wan – but it was a slaughter, like 227. I think it's that 227 Jedi went and something like 20 returned. Uh, I'm getting the exact numbers wrong, but like a huge number of Jedi died. Uh, it was devastating for everyone. But she found there that fighting is when she felt the most in tune with the Force. And she um, she feels like she's dancing with the Force. And she goes into kind of a meditative state uh, while fighting that is just amazing to her. And she feels like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And she um, she re she winds up rest she winds up disobeying an order, but rescuing both a Jedi Master and another Padawan, and she comes back really filled with this thought of I've done the right thing, things are good, but instead she kind of gets critiqued because she didn't follow orders, she didn't do what she was supposed to do. Uh, but then she gets uh, promoted to Jedi Knight, and one of the things that they really go into is how because this is warfare and because so many Jedi were just killed. An awful lot of Padawans are all of a sudden promoted to Jedi Knight and being sent out as generals when they have no idea what they're doing and they don't feel ready for this. And there's this real sense of kind of desperation that I think the Clone Wars hints at but never really says in quite this detail. She goes on another mission. She has some problems on the mission. Uh, the mission goes bad because there's bad intelligence. Uh, she winds up going against orders and winds up fulfilling the mission objective but killing some civilians that she didn't know were there uh, in her mind again because of bad intel. She thinks she's just done something wonderful. But again, the Jedi are like, you're too disobedient. You're too rash and kind of going off on your own. And you haven't, you're have you not in control of yourself. So we're going to keep you being uh, a uh, – oh, and also very important, uh, her, her master dies early on in one of these missions. And she also feels incredibly alone during all this time, uh, especially because no one else really steps forward to be her master. Someone sort of does on this mission. They die. She's still alone. She's asked to sort of stay behind and be in the, uh, 
Jedi Temple for a while in the crash, helping to raise the younglings. She's really chomping at the bit. She's really frustrated. And at some point in time, she also realizes that there are secrets that are being kept for her. She is, as far as she knows, the only one of her race, which is uh, tall, red-skinned, and has uh, abnormally long fingers, which means that she has to have a special kind of lightsaber made. There's a whole mystery that gets unveiled about this person named Freya, who seems to be the same race as her, uh, that her master was hiding one of another lightsaber that was a perfect match for the one that uh, she has. Uh, and basically what it all comes down to is she had a, her mother was also a Jedi, also was kind of more – had trouble fitting in with the Jedi, left the Jedi, got pregnant, and then they came and got her child. And so there's been this whole secret that they've been trying all along to say, don't look into this, don't look into this, which if anyone's ever read a YA novel – they would know how successful it is to tell a teenager, don't look into the secret that's all about your past. Um, so all of this resentment and anger and things like that have been building up for her for so long, all this curiosity. She's meeting with this gardener who's kind of like encouraging her to ask these questions in doubt. And what it all leads to in the end is that she is, uh, eventually she falls to the dark side and she becomes an inquisitor. And so through that, we learn a lot more about the inquisitors themselves. We learn that a lot of the Inquisitors are former Padawans or young Jedi who were tortured and treated horribly and kind of like corrupted and forced to become Inquisitors, but that she does it a lot more willingly, at least as she understands it. Um, she becomes really kind of – she finds her place as an Inquisitor. She has a lot of conflict with some of the other Inquisitors who we know from movie, uh, from the TV shows and the video games and things like that. She becomes more and more cruel and more and more willing to, like, kill people either because they betrayed her or because she, they're just in her way. Um, and But she does develop this very passionate relationship with someone else who is a Padawan with her, Tualan. He has also become a, uh, a Jedi. They have this, like, you know, if you like, we fight, then we kiss. This is the perfect relationship for you. Um but eventually they become so enraptured with each other that Darth Vader believes it's a weakness. He kind of tests them and they both run for their lives and they both wind up being killed by Darth Vader. And that's the end. So, you know, a happy, cheery book that ends on a happy, cheery note. <laughs> exactly. Typical Star Wars. Did I miss any big details? Um, I don't think so. I think one important... Well, I mean, this kind of falls into a minor detail, but it is pretty important, is that you find out after Iscat has turned, as Iscat finds this out, that she was very much um, manipulated and groomed to fall to the dark side. Uh, Palpatine, uh, she met with him a few times, and he mm -hmm. kind of nourished this seed of doubt within her by giving her, as he did Anakin, the praise that she so desperately mm. wanted. And he also had infiltrators in the order who um, would, it was kind of their job to seek out Jedi yep. who were like Iscat forlorn and really um, kind of in pain and not really finding what they wanted from the order during this very tumultuous time. And uh, the person who that was for her was Hizo, the, the gardener. The that, gardener. Or, or, or he, he did, he was droids, I think, and he worked in a garden. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, I um, I, I say gardener because he reminds me at first so much of the gardener in Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> yeah. But yes. For yeah. Um, and so it was like he, he spoke to her and it was under the guise of friendship, under the guise of, of giving her an unbiased opinion. And what he really was doing was coaxing that fire within her um, to rebel mm -hmm. and to, um, to ultimately fall 
to the dark side. And when she finds this out, she's not pleased and she ends up killing him. Yep. Um, and so I think that tells us a lot about Iska as well. But um, I thought I, I really appreciated that it wasn't just she was upset with the Jedi and she, so she fell. It was she was upset with the Jedi and there were people who were willing to nourish that and who were willing to right. use that upset for their own gain. And that is what led to this um, alongside right. her choices as well. But, um, but yeah, I appreciated that part of the book a lot. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Because and I think this gets into, in many ways, I feel like this book is a very interesting addition to the debates we often have about whose fault is it. And Anakin is primarily the one we talk about, but we can branch it out to others. You know, whose fault is it that a Jedi falls to the dark side? Because mm-hmm. here's what I got, and I want to hear where where you see it differently or, or similar, is that this book is really pushing the idea that the blame isn't zero sum and that there's a number of things that create the conditions that cause this to happen. And that, first of all, it is her choices and that that's not – that none of this is saying like, oh, she was poor and helpless and she was manipulated. Mm-hmm. That it is her choices are a huge part of it. That it is the – as you said, the grooming and the manipulation and the the twisting of her like feelings of resentment and and being lied to and like not being – information being kept from her. But also that, and again, here's where the fact of it, it, that this isn't about saying it's one fault and thus it cancels out the others, that the way she's treated by the Jedi creates this incredibly ripe environment for her. Like, you know, it's that the the Sith aren't inventing her feeling resented. Like, all of that comes from what I read is there the to me it reads like she, it's not that the Jedi are wronged with everyone they treat. It's that they have a fairly rigid way of helping people and this is a weird connection but for me as a neurodiverse person like i really identified with she just doesn't fit mm-hmm. into the boxes that they have and that so so and that to me that's where it all kind of comes full circle of the she makes bad choices she's horribly manipulated and she's left vulnerable to all of that by the fact that she kind of doesn't fit with the jedi and and the way that they treat her yeah i don't know that i would so much say that the way that the Jedi treat her because I don't think they treated her any differently than they did any other Jedi. And I think mm-hmm. that that saying I think I think I wouldn't I wouldn't say that they created an environment that was right for this because that can be any environment. You can take any environment mm-hmm. that someone's in and say, "Oh, it's because of this environment that they ended up being prepared for this." Like, "Oh, right. your parents didn't give you enough attention, so it makes sense that they would fall down this way when it just as much makes sense that someone would not get that attention and then do a 180 and want to give that attention to other people that they right. didn't get." You see it both ways. Um, and so I don't I don't ever like using that for either example. I don't like saying that, mm-hmm. you know, like if we're talking about Ahsoka as a character character i don't i don't want to say that she is the way she is because the jedi nourished her that's not true she's the way she is because of what she took from what she was given and i think the same could be said for Izcat: is that she is the way she is because she took or she didn't take what she was and wasn't given and um and i I, that's not to say that the jedi didn't it's i want to say the jedi didn't have the tools at this Mm -hmm. point to give Izcat what she needed. I think yeah. I would I think I would I would say that. And um had it been any other time, I wonder if they would have. And yeah. they would have had the time to 
set her aside and and, and talk to her and yeah. give her her options and and everything and they wouldn't have rushed her trial or they wouldn't have rushed to knight her and she wouldn't have been put in the situation uh where her desire for for fighting was nourished right. rather than something else and um there also wouldn't have been palpatine and there wouldn't have been hezo uh and so i i do agree with what you say about how it is it's not zero sum it's not just mm-hmm. that palpatine was manipulating her it he saw something that could be manipulated right. in her and um and so i agree with that i just i think i would i, I personally uh view it i think from a little bit of a different perspective Mm-hmm. No, that's good. And I, and I, I think I may have overstated or maybe mis, mis- clear because I, I think I agree with you. I'm not by any means saying it's all the Jedi. And I oh, think yeah. it is very much that um, it does feel to me – I think what you said about that they don't have the tools to help her really speaks to it because it's mm-hmm. it's it's the – you're right. I Like in the same way that I – I think this is often one of the hardest things. This is something we talk about a lot on my other podcast of sort of you know superhero ethics that I think like you can say – when a person – like someone who suffers a lot of trauma and abuse as a child, you know, that might help – and then they don't get the resources that they need or the help or the mm-hmm. support they need, that that can then explain and help to not justify but mm-hmm. to understand the villain turn they make. Yeah. But that also to be very clear – if you then extrapolate that to everyone who has mental trauma as a mm-hmm. child or physical trauma as a child as you become a villain, yeah, you're completely wrong. Yeah. Like I think there are definitely Jedi who are probably – don't fit as much as she does who do not turn to the dark side the way she does. Yeah. And I think that's really true. Uh, to me, it's really – it's this idea of and, – and I think you're – I think what you'd also said that was really true is this idea of this this time right here and now of the Clone Wars is not indicative of the Jedi throughout all time. Yeah. And, and that's, I don't remember – go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that's like the I, – I always point out to people that that is what Palpatine wanted. He wanted yes. this big disruption in the Order so that all of these things happened, so that all the dominoes would fall, that – all of the, the – it would be like a trickle-down effect. You have the the Order's attention on this war that they're not even sure they should be fighting, fighting that they're not even sure they should be doing anything about. And that takes their attention away from the individuals. And yeah. that leaves them – again, like Izcat, like you said, it leaves them ripe for that. And, uh, and I just – I – and this isn't anything for you. I just mean in general, yeah. and like the fandom, I see a lot that people people don't make that connection. That yes, the Jedi aren't aren't one hundred percent blameless by any means. They have their faults that led them to this place, but also a large part of that is the workings of Palpatine playing yep. out exactly as he wanted them to. They are forced into this situation. That makes them make all of these horrible decisions and neglect that they wouldn't, that they might not have otherwise made, yeah, and or allowed, and um, and ultimately leads to their demise. And it's just, it's exactly what Palpatine wanted. That's the tragedy, yeah. like a beautiful tragedy, almost. I don't want to say beautiful tragedy, but I, I, I don't know, know. Like, I think it really is. I mean, I think a lot of times, when especially when you've been on this podcast, but other times, it's something we've harped on again and again is that the Jedi are peacekeepers and when palpatine forces them into a position of being war makers it it something fundamentally cracks mm-hmm. within the jedi structures and then i think 
this book to me, we've seen that from the outside. Yeah. This book, I think, gives some of the best examples of exactly how that is yeah. from within. Absolutely. And to me, one of the things I love is that in her first mission, she's really racked with guilt because she killed numerous sentient beings mm-hmm. and she was good at it. Yeah. And the force was gu- – and she's always been taught the force is about peace, the force is about respecting life. And in her understanding, the force guided her and made her better at killing people. And Well, I, I want to say I, this is a – I've been rewatching Rebels <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, there was an episode recently early in season one or halfway through season one where um, Kanan's been training Ezra – and he, they get to a point where they're up against the Grand Inquisitor. And Kanan's been trying to teach Ezra how to connect with the force around him and specifically with nature around him. Yeah. And Ezra's been having a really difficult time because he can't, he can't uh, accept what his fear is. He can't really truly connect. And when they're up against the Grand Inquisitor, Ezra is forced to connect in that moment in, under very, uh, like, very difficult, very stressful situation. And in doing so, he manages to connect with the nature around him, with the the animals around him, but he also lets in the dark side because he doesn't know, he's not trained enough to know how to do one without doing the other. And the difference I see between that moment with Ezra and this moment with Izcat is that Ezra had Kanan afterwards to explain to him what happened, yeah. why it happened, and that it wasn't his fault, and that it was it was partially Kanan's fault. Kanan says this that he's sorry because he didn't prepare him for that, and yeah. um, and that they're, they're going to work through it together. That they're gonna they're gonna try and figure it out. And Kane, uh, Ezra is terrified in that moment, and I see that a lot in his cat. But she didn't have anyone afterwards to to tell her yeah. this is what happened. This is why you shouldn't be afraid. Because one perfect thing about Kanan is that he didn't let his fear of what he saw in Ezra go through to Ezra. He mm-hmm. kept that to himself, accepted right. that it was a fear, and then was like, the priority right now is Ezra understanding what happened. And his cat didn't right. have that. And I do, I feel for her because what yeah. might have been different if she did have that, someone to explain it and not pass their fear along to her. I think that's exactly true because we get as literally the opposite mm-hmm. is that and, – and one thing to find out is that her master was close to her mother and th- there's some stuff about how like maybe both her and her mother have a natural inclination to the dark side, which I, I – that was a part of the book that I was like, I don't really love this. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know where because that's again kind of a weird – like some people are just more inclined to yeah. be villains. It's yeah. just weird. but. But sure, yeah, her master was very afraid of that. And I think that's part of why, even when her master's alive, she doesn't get that. She doesn't get the reinforcement and support mm-hmm. in that same kind of way. Um, and, I, and I think to me, that's one of the things that I did really see her as a mirror of Anakin. Mm-hmm. Of that for both of them, and again, Anakin chooses to do the things he does. He is 100% responsible. None of this is to take away blame for him or anything like that. But again, it's saying like, what's what? I'll back up for a second. For me, the only reason to discuss blame is not to decide who's right or wrong and thus who to punish. Mm-hmm. It's to figure out what do we learn from it and how can yeah. we do better. Yeah. And that's where I think like, even if the Jedi are only one percent of the cause, yeah. If there's things the Jedi can fix, let's still talk about mm-hmm. that. You know, 
I want to read a section where Iscot winds up going to the planet. She finds this home planet that's been kept secret from her this whole time that both her and her mother came from. And she says, For a long moment, Iscot let herself weep as she gave in to years of feeling alone and different, looking for something that wasn't there. The emotions washed through her like waves lapping at sand. The secret something she'd always been missing, it was exactly this, love and acceptance, perhaps even family. The Jedi thought they provided everything a youngling needed to thrive, but they were wrong. So wrong. Babies needed to be loved and coddled. Children needed to be seen and known and cherished for exactly who they were. She'd never had that chance. Perhaps a droid or caregiver had held her when she was tiny and fussing, but she'd felt no affectionate connection with another being for as long as she could remember, had never felt like she was deserving of love. And to me, that's... And again, I don't think we can universalize that because Obi-Wan talks about his childhood mm-hmm. in the uh, Jedi temples being 100% the opposite. Mm-hmm. But to me, that's very damning. Like, that's very, like, she had it. A lot of the other Jedi Padawans might not have needed this, but she did. Mm-hmm. And when the Jedi didn't give her to her, it left this huge hole that Padawan and Padawan's minions and other people like that mm-hmm. could could fill. And it's it's interesting because... Like, and I know the High Republic is a different era, but you see like a vastly different thing again in the High Republic oh, yeah. with the with the younglings there because they're a huge family and they're yeah. they're not discontent, they're not unhappy, they're they're genuinely, genuinely happy and they love each other and that's encouraged. Um yeah. and I also I I wonder how much of that is because Iscat was the only one at the order who was of her species. And so they mm-hmm. didn't they didn't know a lot about the species. They didn't know what their rituals were, what their what their um their culture was. Right. And because I thought it was interesting that they that they would discourage that for her because we see the opposite with Ahsoka. Ahsoka as a Tagruda has all of her cultural stuff. She has the right. the um her her headband, which I forget what it's called um, right now, but it has the the tooth of um, the a creature that um, Tegruda and Shilly are supposed to hunt when they're coming mm-hmm. of age or whenever they're teenagers, young young children, and it shows that they're prepared to hunt, and it's a it's a rite of passage in the Tegruda culture, and Ahsoka has that, and right. um, and. There are other Togruta we see with similar cultural uh, endowments and also other species who follow their their culture. And mm-hmm. I wonder if that plays into the sense of acceptance and that so maybe Ahsoka didn't feel alone because she did still have this connection to her culture and to her people. Yeah. And, um, you know, Iscat didn't have that because they didn't know anything about them. Right. And, and that is, I think the fault maybe not the fault of the jedi but that they that they they didn't see what that could do to a person to feel that isolated and the importance of that to to a person and i i think it's interesting that the reason they kept her past from her wasn't because her mother was prone to the dark side but it was because she died by suicide and right. they didn't want that as an effect on her, which is there's a lot to be said about what is the right of someone to keep that from mm-hmm. the child of that person. Um, and so the way I see it is that a lot of this is good intentions, but good intentions don't always equal good effects. 
And, um, and so it's, it's difficult. And I think when I wrote my review for this book, I think at the end I put what I, what I hope people remember is that the Jedi didn't always do everything perfectly and they made a lot of mistakes, but at the end of the day, what will always separate them from the Sith and from the dark side is that everything they did, they did to try and benefit the person for, for their betterment. And the dark side does the opposite. They take and they take and Mm. they manipulate. And I think that shows in that even as an inquisitor is cat didn't feel like she belonged. She still felt like she was an outsider. And that's when she realized all of the, all these things I've done. It's not that she regretted it, but she's like, I did all of this and I I'm still an outsider. This isn't any better than what I had before. No, I think you're really right. And I'm a big believer in pendulums, you know, that a lot of times either a person or a society or, you know, a culture will swing all the way one way and then kind of see some problems and then sometimes swing too far the other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's a good description of what what happened with the Jedi yeah. with uh, Iscott because they did have some connection to her culture because mm-hmm. her mother had been a Jedi as well. Mm-hmm. And they they talked with people from that culture, but they felt that something had clearly gone wrong because mm-hmm. her mother had left and then her mother, as you said, had had ended her life. And uh, uh, in part because she, in the same way, the mother had been so hungry for attachment that the only thing she had it, that, that she felt this attachment with was her child. And so when her child left, um, although important, the Jedi don't kidnap the child. So let's kind of get rid of that, yeah. you know, she, particular thing. She called she called um, Simbervay, who would be uh, Iscat's master. She specifically yep. called her to come pick her up because she wanted her to have a chance at becoming a Jedi. And I think I think it's also yeah. important to note that her mother left because she failed the trials. And mm. she didn't want to stick around the temple um, as anything else other than a Jedi. And so she went back right. to her home. And uh, she had Iscat. And when she noticed that Iscat was very strong in the Force, she began to fear that this wouldn't be enough for her, that this place wouldn't be enough for her because it wasn't enough for her. Yeah. And she wanted to give Iscat the chance to be the Jedi that yeah. she couldn't be. And ultimately that separation was just too much for her. Yeah. yeah. I think very true. And I, and so I think, again, it's the, you know, part of what I think is, I, I, I'm always, I always think it's interesting when you have a movie or a show where you have two villain characters and you get backstory for one and no backstory for the other. And I and then often the audience will feel much more sympathetic to the one with the backstory and mm-hmm. be like, oh, they're not a, they're more of an antihero, they're not a villain. <laughs> and it's like, well, but what if you knew the other's backstory? You know, like everyone is and, and to me, I think Semper Vey treats Iscat horribly, but she's also treating her the best, as you said, she's she's trying her best because she's seen that doing it a different way failed spectacularly. Mm-hmm. And so that that's kind of the pendulum I mean of I think she now that's part of why she's going all the way to this other end of never giving praise and never giving affection and th- hoping that this will be different than it was with her mother. Mm-hmm. And and in some ways it is. She passes the trials, mm-hmm. but still is disastrous in its own way. Yeah. Yeah. It's an, it, it is interesting how we try to correct and oftentimes end up overcorrecting, like you said. <laughs> mm-hmm. I also really love that you brought up the High Republic books and how part of what we're seeing is that the way the Jedi are now – is not how they've always been. And when I had Neighborhood Master Alan talking about lightsabers on, we, we talked about this a, a bunch of episodes ago, 
And the idea that we were kind of coming up with is that like a lot of philosophies or religions or things like that, generally there are these like mantras and sayings and the point is you're supposed to believe in the spirit of the rule. Mm -hmm. But that sometimes it can become more literal and you begin following the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. Yeah. And would you agree that like this is kind of an illustration of how the Jedi had become more the the letter of things because it was more like – so, uh, in, um, you know, no attachments now means not, you know, don't don't become so attached that you forget everything else but because, you know, don't form any relationships with each other or uh, all those kind of things. Yeah, I think it's interesting and I wish we had more – more from now that we know the High Republic, because I think there's mm-hmm. a lot to be said that like none of that existed before uh, 2020. So a lot of the canon material we have now from before that precedes that um, might not exactly like follow along with that. But I think it would be right. interesting to have some content between like right like before the prequel era, like well before Palpatine got his his dirty little claws into uh, mm-hmm. the Republic. Uh, what were the Jedi like then, like after the High Republic era, but before Palpatine got into this? What were right. they? What what were they like? Were they leading more into that? Were they, um, like what was the change for? Like why why did they become so strict? And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's because they just didn't have time for ifs, ands, or buts. You know, like mm-hmm. they're yep. so involved in Senate ha- happenings. And Republic happenings that they the council doesn't have time to sit and 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 go through like every like if there's an application to be like hey I want to be in a relationship or yeah. I want to do whatever that they like they're like we don't have time for that we have literally this entire galaxy to look over and ensure that peace yeah. is happening we don't have time for these trivial little things but over time obviously it's not trivial that ends up culminating in something much bigger. Um, and I just – I think one thing the higher public really shows is that the death of the Jedi truly was just how entangled they got with the Republic. And you yeah. see so many Jedi at that time because it's still fairly new – not new, new, but still fairly new um, – their direct entanglement with the Senate and the Republic. And they're just like – we should – some of them are like, we're relying too much on them. We're letting them tell us to do too many things. We right. can't do that. That's not who we're meant to be. And I just I just think that that just made them busy, made them neglectful. Yep. And, and I think that that part of the story is also really important because so much of this is Palpatine himself, for sure. And I think there is supposed to be an element to which he is the most powerful Sith in quite some time. But also that, although we haven't seen it on screen... I think the clear there's a number of the extended universe books that put this directly, and we haven't seen that in the canon. Yeah. But I think it's definitely implied that the the slow entanglement of the Jedi with the government is something that's been happening, in part just because that is often the nature of organizations mm-hmm. like the Jedi, and it's not that the Sith did it entirely, but also that the Sith have been gently pushing it yeah. for literal centuries. And that part of what makes Palpatine succeed where every other Sith before him has, maybe he's smarter, maybe he's better, maybe he's stronger than the dark side, but also he comes along when the, situ- when the Jedi are a lot more vulnerable to someone like him yeah. than, you know, whoever was the Jedi, you know, the Sith don't appear in the High Republic because they know they can't be quite so open yeah. yet. They have to be hidden much more. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think also just the fact that Palpatine had a contingency for everything. And so it was mm-hmm. like if Anakin didn't work out, maybe Iscat would have been his Anakin. <laughs> like, you yeah. know what I mean? If, like he he had people in the like wait in uh, you know on um what do they call it in baseball? Uh <laughs> the dugout on <laughs> yeah. the bench. On on the, well they have there's a specific term for it. Um of oh, the, the bullpen. The person who's like coming um right next to bat. Um but I forget oh, what deck. they're called. Yeah. And um that he had he had people on deck like waiting to take Anakin's place if need be. Yeah. And um it just like really goes to show that even if Anakin hadn't fall hadn't fallen probably the same things would have happened um, as far as like the fall of the Republic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's really true. I think it's really true. There's one last thing. And again, I don't mean this to be like just completely beat up on the Jedi because (laughs) there's so much else to it, but there's one more just part of it that I really want to bring up. And it kind of goes back to the joke that I made, but I think there's some truth to it. I can't think of anything dumber than having a deeply inquisitive teenager and just clearly clearly showing that there's a secret there but just telling them again and again don't ask questions don't look into it and i'll again this is from her perspective and it's an unreliable narrator and this is as she's starting to learn some more about it and um mace windu has been the one who's been portrayed as the one who is kind of most telling her no uh so that's who she's talking about but i think it's broader than that uh here's the quote the irony of all was if they would just tell her the truth she wouldn't have to keep asking the curiosity was killing her It was such a simple question. What happened to a specific Jedi? And yet it was clear the answer was being perfectly hidden or possibly erased. If it was merely unimportant, what would be the harm in telling her? To Iscott, their reticence made it seem as if something unsavory had happened. Telling someone not to ask a question never made them stop asking the question. It only made the question bother them more. Was Mace Windu so out of touch with the nature of sentient beings that he'd managed to forget about that? I might say teenage sentient beings, um, but like, what what do you think of the effort by Mace and Yacosta and Sember and all the rem to try and keep this from her? This is where I mentioned previously. I had like a couple issues with the book. This is where that kind of happened for me because on mm-hmm. for a couple reasons. One, I just don't buy it. <laughs> like, yeah. like it was, it was, it was like you said, like comically overdone. Like, Mm -hmm. them continually telling her no and then getting shifty looks and everything. Like, to the point where I was just like, I just don't don't buy it. I just don't buy that. I don't buy that they would just, like, harp on this over and over and over and over and over again. Eventually, I do believe they would have told her something, if only to ensure that, like, that would be the safer route than her possibly going off on her own or, you know – whatever i think mace windu is smarter than that actually (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and and that's where my other issue is my other reason for this is that um and and when i said that i had trouble accepting that all of what was coming across on the page was is cat's bias and not some of the author's own bias against certain characters Mm -hmm. is with mace because i don't think i would think this if all of the jedi council were characterized kind of similarly to him in their mm-hmm. ambivalence towards uh, Iscat and right. or kind of carelessness towards Iscat. But I see this especially like times 10 with Mace. And um, and I just, I wonder why, like why? There's not really a reason other than to pile on to what has already been made of Mace's yeah. character in the fandom. And, and I have issue with that because 
you know, we, we tend to see that Mace is the one that's blamed for everything. Yoda's not blamed right. nearly as much as him. Kiati Mundi's not blamed nearly as much as him. Adi Gallia. Um, it's always it's always purely Mace's fault. And and so I have issue with that because I think that Lynn leans can tend to lean a little bit towards um towards some racism because he is the mm-hmm. only black character. And yep. uh and I, I so I, I'm very I'm sensitive to that when I read this. And it might be my own biases coming across as well in interpreting that, but I just I didn't see that same behavior or that that same characterization with Yoda in this. I didn't see it with Adigalia, with Jocasta mm-hmm. even. Um, it was made to be kind of funny with Jocasta, like she's just a stern librarian. That's why she's acting right. this way. Um, but with Mace, it was it was characterized as being just like truly mean and just like yeah. unnecessarily mean, even beyond looking at it from Izcat's own point of view, and. I don't know. I just I didn't buy that. I didn't mm-hmm. not even not even considering Izcat's position um, and her feelings. It just felt overdone to me. I think I think that's a good point. I think that it is one of the where even where like, do I believe that the Jedi would keep secrets from the Padawans with a belief that if they just tell the Padawans, focus on the future, focus on the the now, not the past. Mm-hmm. Yes, I absolutely believe yeah. that, and I think that is uh, a major failing. Of the, I, th- I think that is an unrealistic idea that the Jedi can often say is, don't think about the past, only think about the present. But I completely agree that making Mace Wind and uh, ironically, you and I have had a conversation about this before <laughs> I read this book, but that conversation is not going to be made public for a couple more months now, <laughs> but about the same topic. And I think, honestly, I probably wouldn't have been aware of it unless I'd had this conversation with you and you helped me point that out. I I think that there are ways in which part of the actual story is that the institution of the Jedi themselves have become more unrealistic and more demanding and more, in part also because you said, more busy. Mm -hmm. Because what she really needed is someone to say, we're going to reveal this truth to you but in a planned, specific, you know, like when, when there's a, at a heart, you're telling a child that something terrible has happened. Mm-hmm. You want someone who really knows how to do that, like in the room, to help them deal with this news. Yeah. And I think I would have I would have believed it a lot more if it had come from Sember, you mm-hmm. know. And and like because it's all from Iscat's point of view, this would never occurred. But like in my head canon – there's a conversation somewhere where Mace is saying to Sember, Sempat, like, you have to tell her at some point. You can't, she's going to find this out, you yeah. know? Um, but I, yeah, I think that because of this institutional need, that, that there's an institutional belief in this, and then because of the nature of storytelling, uh, you need to make one person the focus of it, and then the fandom needs to make one person the focus mm-hmm. of it. And so I think it is Mace Windu a lot more, and part of that's because... He sometimes plays that role, but also I and I like I think there's kind of racism on two levels. I think that I do think he plays that role more than any of the other Jedi, mm-hmm. and I think part of that's because Samuel. If you want someone to be intimidating and scary, <laughs> Samuel Jackson's a really good person for that, rather than a three foot puppet. Um, but I think that there's also some like, oh, let's have the black guy be the scary one. Yeah. Is not the most racially aware, and also that you're right that the fans have like, like sometimes I will see. Oh, if Mace wasn't on the Jedi Council, then Anakin would never have fallen yeah. because everyone would have been great to him. And it's like, no, no. Yoda didn't want him on the, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, 
all these other Jedi. Um, so like, yeah, I, I, I really think... all of them didn't want him to be master. It wasn't just Mace. Yeah. Um, but, and I, I also... I think on, on top of that, like what is like made me a little bit more upset than I would have been otherwise is that we don't have much canon material that puts Mace in a kinder light, in a more yeah. understanding and sympathetic um, light. And I think that that is truly a travesty because we have that for people who fall to the dark side, but we don't have it for someone who was killed by the dark side. And yeah. I know we have that in Legends. Um, he has a book that, um, I know lots of Mace Windu fans are like, that's my canon until told otherwise. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but I think it, I think it really is a, a little bit of a failing on Star Wars part that they don't have something for Mace yet like that, yeah. because I think it would help balance things a little bit more. You can have maybe like over blaming of Mace in this story. If you have something that is also helping you understand his character, from a more right. intimate perspective than than an out, from the outside, and we right. don't have that, and um, and so I think I would I would accept this a little bit more if we did have that, but we don't, and hopefully one day yeah. we do. I mean, in some ways, I might even love if he's kind of a Cassandra figure mm. that for the last forty years he's been the one seeing the problems, yeah. and he he's like, no, guys, the dark side is rising, mm-hmm. and no one else in the council is listening to him. Yeah. And so he becomes a little more extreme. Like, again, it wouldn't it, – I still don't love him being the the cop on the council, but it yeah. would also help to explain why he does have some of that. But as you're right, like, let's see Yoda being more of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's see some of the others. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the Jedi, and I do want to go back to them a bit. But, but that's not the entirety of the book. As you said, there's a lot – this book also gives us a lot into – the nature of the Inquisitors uh, and the nature of how the dark side treats them. Uh, what did you get out of that that side of the book? I loved that. That was my favorite. Mm-hmm. I almost wish that it took up more of the book um, mm-hmm. because there's so much more I wanted to know. I really was intrigued by how <laughs> they have this like um, Mojo Dojo Casa house for themselves, which isn't what yep. we see in <laughs> Kenobi or in um, the Jedi Fallen Order game. It's not... Uh, at the Inquisitorious place, it's uh, it's just some other place on Coruscant where they do their training. And I loved that it was just – it was like a, a, a sorority or fraternity house for mm-hmm. for fallen Jedi. And, and it was kind of funny. And I, I really liked the leaning into the evilness of this and into the tragedy of this. And yep. I thought it was really interesting that – even Izcat admits that she is one of a very few of the brothers and sisters of the Inquisitorious who chose this mm-hmm. path and who weren't tortured into it or brainwashed into it, um, but who were given the choice and said yes. And I hadn't, I don't know if I had expect that, expected that or not, but when she talks about hearing the screams in the hallway and when one of the other Inquisitors tells her, you don't know what it was like, like you've not had to be tortured this way. Mm-hmm. And that she, like, because of that, because she wasn't tortured, because she wasn't brainwashed, the Grand Inquisitor and Vader didn't trust her yet. And Palpatine didn't trust yeah. her yet. And so they were like, she. it took her longer to be given missions and to be trusted because even though she chose this path, they were still like, well, we've not tortured it out of you yet. We've not mm-hmm. we've not probed droid it out of you yet. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I remember reading that. Think, you know what? 
if anyone who has force powers would take a psych 101 course <laughs> and then start their own force user organization, they'd do amazing. Because the Inquisitors know as little about human nature, it seems, as, as sentient nature as the Jedi do in some ways. Um, like one of the things I thought that was really striking and that she realizes is that you know, one of the things that is a constant, and it's a huge part of Anakin's story, but also of others, is that as a Jedi, you're not allowed to have your own, you're not allowed to have attachments, you're not allowed to fall in love, you're not allowed to, you know, have the, uh, have a partner in a romantic way. And, well, you know, it's part of why Kanan's story is so awesome and why I think Kanan would actually be great at starting that, like, you know, kind of third way. Not great Jedi, that's not canon, but, but it's a different question. Um and I think one of the things that really breaks her, and I think is incredibly symbolic, is it is her feelings for Tualan, who's, as I said, he's the male Padawan who she's often connected with. They have a real right. I mean, by day one, if you've ever read a YA romance novel of any kind, you know they're going to hook up after, like, the first page they appear on. And they very much have a, like are we fighting or are we flirting kind of a thing? And she actually says that at times. She mm -hmm. says, like, I hate him and I love the flirtation aspect that comes from the hate. Um, and it's a very, like, but but in the end, part of her feels like I have the freedom now to be with him. Um, uh, and it's very fade to black. I mean, it's never really put on screen uh, at all. But it's clear that they become lovers. I think that exact word is used. But then it's her connection to him that dooms them in the, Inqui in the Inquisition as well. And that's mm -hmm. kind of, I think, the lie of the the seduction and lie of the dark side mm -hmm. is that no you're you're you've just as little freedom to actually fall in love and to have an to have an attachment yeah in some ways it's it's even worse because you're you're allowed to have those feelings but you're not allowed to like you're encouraged you're encouraged to have those feelings mm -hmm. because it with those intense feelings of of love and passion when you're with the dark side, they become possession and they become tainted and they, they become very toxic. And so that just feeds the dark side in you. And so it's encouraged when it's not encouraged right. with the Jedi. But then as soon as you get it, if you get too much of it, then it's like, no, 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 no. We didn't mean that. We didn't mean that. It's meant to be like a one and done. <laughs> like not, yeah. not what you actually want, not what you actually like – you, what you need and what you wanted from the Jedi that you couldn't get, you also can't get here. And um, I think it's interesting because I wanted so much more with her relationship with Tualan because I think it's very clear in the pre-Order 66 days when she's with Tualan that she has much stronger feelings for him than he does for her. Whether or not that's because he's not allowing himself to feel it or because he genuinely doesn't feel it um, – because he doesn't know anything about it, um, yeah. is is another question. But he was – I think Tualan's story is 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 a much bigger tragedy than than Izcat's, to be honest. Because mm -hmm. Tualan wanted to be a good Jedi, and that's what he was. And he believed in all of these things that Izcat became disillusioned by. And he wanted to live that life. He wanted to do good by it. He wanted to be good and do good. And that was taken from him and that yeah. was brainwashed and tortured out of him. And he becomes the exact, <clears throat> the exact opposite of everything that he believed in. And so in some ways I see his, his love for his cat as kind of like this really big sadness. Like it's not happy to me. Mm -hmm. It's not on his end. It's not happy to yeah. me. It's not, it's not um something to be celebrated. It's, it's something 
like it's a mourning thing for me. I felt so bad for him because I was like, this is not what you wanted <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. And and I think it's so sad that Izcat doesn't see that, that she she's like, oh, this is his true self coming out. This is his true self. And I'm like, no, I, I think his true self was was who he was with the Jedi. And that's been so twisted. And and maybe there are true parts of him coming out in his love for Izcat. I do think that. Otherwise, it wouldn't have turned into something that Vader feared. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's it's a tragedy that her her love for him was a was something to be celebrated, and his love for her was actually a sign of something very very mournful. I think mm. it's interesting. I definitely see it very differently, but I but I I very much get where you're coming from. And I'll start by just saying, I think that having two thirds of the book be her time falling out of the Jedi and then one third being her start, middle and end of the Inquisition is, is, is a failure. And yeah. And I, but I, I don't, I, I, I don't want any less of her time in the Jedi. Honestly, I wish that like part one ends with her getting on the Inquisition ship. And then we get a whole second book about her being in the Inquisition. Because yeah. I, cause I, my feelings about, about, about her and Toulon's relationship would be different, I think, if we had more time with it. And that's what I meant I meant to conclude yeah. by saying is that I think it it wasn't rushed. There just wasn't enough of it. And so yeah. when it came to the end of it, I was just kind of like, do I really believe his feelings for her? Like that that was my thing, right. I think, is that and, – and why I do think that his true self did come out in his love for her. Um, but we don't see that. We're just kind of told yeah. about it. And I have I have an issue – like, a, that's not always an issue in writing, despite what people are told. But it can be. There are certain things you do need to show. You do need to show instead of mm-hmm. just telling, just summarizing. Like, I needed to see yeah. his love for her grow from what it yeah. started out as. Especially because, like – I think I have a more negative view of him because I see him at like to me one of the most defining aspects for me of his character is when they're going to war and I think it's maybe like their first or second mission together and or uh they have this happens a couple of times during that time and she is really feeling like all these feelings she wants to process this them with someone and he she reaches out to him and realizes that he has some of the same doubts, like that, that there's a another Jedi Knight who's controlling the two of them, who, who like not controlling, but like is their commander, and he's kind of an idiot. And you know, he uh, Toulon, um, Toulon and Iscot kind of connect for a little bit about that. And she has this moment of I can finally show my feelings. I can finally like talk about all the stuff that I've had to repress for so long. And when she does that, he rejects her mm-hmm. because you said he wants to be a Jedi and he's he sees the the path she's on. And I think he was a good Jedi in that part and a terrible person. And I wanted to kind of shake him and be like, no, this is a, a sentient being in desperate need of connection. And everyone else has ignored her. How dare you turn your back on her? I th- I think he was also a teenager. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna true. defend him a bit. I think I think he was because I, I there were moments where I was like this was a really cruel thing to do, but yeah. there were moments where Izcat also did things that were really cruel things to do and mm-hmm. um to another person. And so I think it that's one of those things where it's like if we read that from Tuolan's perspective, I imagine that it would be he sees something in her, in her that he is afraid of. And right. that he doesn't know how to handle. And so the only thing he knows how to do is 
distance himself. And yeah. I'm sure based on what we've seen of his character that he feels guilty about that because he does keep going back to her. He does keep opening back up to her and right. almost like in spite of himself, in spite of his better, you know, yeah. the things that he thinks. And, um, and so I think, I think it is like that perspective thing again. Yeah. I do think that he treated her poorly. Um, but I, I definitely believe that, but I also, I have sympathy for him because it's difficult yeah. to, feel so much for someone who views th views things significantly different than you do. Yeah. And you don't want to feel that way. You don't want to let yourself go down that route. And so what other option do you have? Like there are other options, right. but in the moment you're like I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to I'm just going to close off. And that's a well, horrible reaction, but I feel like it's a very human one too. Oh, completely. And I I feel like Kind of like what I was saying before, if this book was taught by his from if this book was told from his perspective, I think it'd be this, I think we would completely understand and justify what he does and also be like, oh God, how can she be so terrible? And, and, and be clearly <laughs> the point is that neither one of those is true. Yeah. And I think and I think also the fact that he's been I want to choose my words very carefully so it's not just like throwing blame at the Jedi, but I think he is an insider in the Jedi in the way she isn't. Mm -hmm. And so for him, the idea of like this goes against my Jedi training. That that carries a lot more weight for him. I think is really important. Well, he had a very a very sympathetic master as well. He he was very right. close to his master in a way that um, Iscat wasn't, and so I think he didn't need that connection to Iscat the way Iscat needed yeah. her connection to him. Like Iscat said, she's jealous of their yeah, connection a number of times. Yeah, and so he had someone to yeah. talk about all that stuff with, and she didn't, and so she latched onto him, and that's not her fault, but it's also not fair to him, if that makes sense, because how is he supposed to know the answers either? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've said, every, everyone is doing hurtful things mm -hmm. for very understandable reasons yeah. in this book, Yeah. except Mace Windu, um, who just needed to read some more YA. <laughs> um, and, and I want to talk about that the decision he makes at the very end, because I, I, I think there's two ways to see it. And, and just to, again, for those who haven't read it, basically it's that... Um, First of all, so the two of them are together during Order 66, and the book, I think this is implied in Rise of the uh, Revenge of the Sith, and some other works have spelled it out more, but this I think goes into the most detail, that basically a number of fairly young Jedi Knights were sent off all across the galaxy um, to, to deal with these like uprisings on the Outer Rim, because then all of them would be a lot more vulnerable to Order 66, and... Uh, so that happens, and it's very clear that that's Palpatine's manipulation, and uh, Order 66 starts, and, and and Iscot has this moment where she has this psychic connection, and she feels so many of the Jedi being killed, but the clones are specifically told not to try and kill her. They're, they're told, like, she's not one of the rebels, she's not one of the rebels, you know, she's not one of the ones who are treasonous, and they have a message from Palpatine specifically inviting her to be part of the Inquisition, and it's very much a, I'm telling you about the carrot, and I'm never going to say anything about the stick, but the stick is very clear, where during the Inquisition, all the things you didn't like about the Jedi will be fine, or we're going to kill you. Yeah. And Tulan is not given that choice. And there's this really heartbreaking moment where she realizes that Tulan's going to die, and she makes no attempt to save him. Yeah. And she thinks that she couldn't save him. It does feel like it's probably kind of a justification to herself. Um, then again, I think 
the way any of the Jedi get punked in Order 66 doesn't make any sense, but that's <laughs> my own gripes. Um, and so she fails to save him. And then at the very end of the book, again, I think you're right, it's, it's very, not rushed, but I wanted more time with it. Yeah. Vader accuses her of, they accuses both of them of their being um, uh, attached to each other. And he swings his lightsaber at Iscot and he say, and he protects her. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment where <clears throat> Vader's like, okay, clearly both of you have failed. Yeah. Because what he, and, and it was, here's my question. Does he protect her because he is so attached to her and so in love with her? Or is that because some part of his Jedi-ness is still there mm. that he is just always going to be willing to risk himself to protect another, which is what the, like, to me, that was, I think, one of the, like, there's a beautiful symmetry between she doesn't save him, he does save her at these two different points. Yeah. And I left to wonder, is this is this his love for her or is this his, the last part of being a Jedi that it would never really torture it out of him? I think it's both. I think that yeah. the his Jedi-ness comes through because of his love for her. And yeah. and that that's what is able to break the kind of, not spell, but the, the brainwashing and the torture that has been done to him. The thought of seeing the person that he cares deeply about and that he, he loves and die in front of him because of him, mm-hmm. is too much for him to handle. And so self-preservation is no longer there, and the Jedi selflessness makes its way through that crack. Mm-hmm. And that is what Vader feared, because the yeah. his love for her did make that crack come through and did make the selflessness come through, because if he wasn't, if it hadn't, he would have just let his cat die, even if he did love her. Like, even if he did, yeah. like, have strong feelings for her and it wasn't quite love. Um he would have just let her die because of self-preservation. And yeah. that's not the Jedi way. <laughs> and it does make me wonder, though, like, if Vader had swung at, exactly at him, would she have stopped it? I don't think she would have. I don't think she would have either. I think yeah. she was ready. I think she was ready to, to let him die. And it says that she never told him she loved him, but he told her. And... Yeah. Um, she. I think it's 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 clear that that's how she feels that she does feel that way about him, but I don't yeah. think that that's everything to her, and I don't think it ever was. Um, mm-hmm. her desire for individuality and and power and well, not power, but just knowledge and acceptance was more than her desire for him. Yeah, no, I think it's true. I think it's true, and I think it's what more makes it a really beautiful story mm-hmm. and. Kind of makes me wish that she would then write like the same series of events from Toulon's perspective. Yeah, you know? I think that could be. Or at really least, well at least the Order sixty six, and then into him like the fight that he has with his cat um, after. Yeah. After he falls, um, I was gonna. I was gonna say. Actually, I'll wait until the end for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I think also part of what I get out of this, and I know there's some exceptions like Kyle Mundi, and and again we're talking only about the Jedi in the Clone Wars era. But it does feel like both perspectives are fairly... Romance is not really a part of the life of either a Jedi or a Sith. Mm -hmm. Like, both of them are, for very different reasons, very opposed to it. And I feel like it makes Kanan's love with Hera in Rebels all the more revolutionary and all the more powerful, that he kind of is showing that, to an extent, both are wrong. 
Um, and and again, more maybe the, you know, uh, elder man would have been totally in favor of Kanan, though he'd been like, <laughs> you've been with the same one for like a week. There's like five <laughs> other people getting ghost seduced. Um, but yeah, talk about like how. Uh, does this kind of give you more thoughts about like um, Hera and Kanan in terms of like them making this work in a way that both sides in this, you know, seem to be opposed to? Yeah, I think, I think it comes with incredible, more so on Kanan's part than Hera's, but incredible self-awareness and mm-hmm. self-discipline. And to, to the extent where you acknowledge your feelings, you don't hide from them, you don't fear them. Right. But you also acknowledge what your duty is. And Kanan has decided to be a Jedi Knight. He could have left that behind with Order Mm -hmm. 66. He could have rejected all of it. But he didn't. He came back to it. And he dedicated himself back to it. And he took that very seriously. And I think that that's something that maybe we don't see very often. Is He took that as seriously as he took his love for Hera. And... I think that was only allowed to happen because Hera didn't try to ask for anything more from him. She understood why he was the way that he was. She accepted that his love came with a caveat, which didn't make him love her Mm -hmm. any less, but meant that she would be on par with his duty. And that if his duty ever needed to come first, it would. Because the same is true for Hera. Right. She's not a Jedi, so she doesn't have the fear of, of having this immense power be used for something so terrible and dark. But she is very dedicated to the Rebellion, and she's dedicated to hope and to... Essentially, which is what a Jedi is. De- Jedi is dedicated to hope as well. Yeah. And, and that dedication takes priority over her yeah. love for Kanan. Even though that doesn't make her love him less, also. So she under I think she understands his decision on a level that not many people do until Ezra does what he does. Um, yeah. And I think that's why it worked. It can't just be it can't just be Kanan the one who is self aware and self disciplined. It has to be Hera as well, or the other person. It needs to be both parties in order for that to work. And I think that's why it's. It is very revolutionary and it's very difficult. And I've brought this mm-hmm. up before, but it it makes sense why the Jedi would just say no relationship, like no serious relationships, because yeah. that is such a rare type of love. It's a true, mm-hmm. a true love and a true acceptance of the other person. And that can be difficult to find because part of finding that is experimenting, like going on dates with other people and entering relationships that don't end well. But what happens when you enter a relationship that goes horribly and you have this massive power at your beck and call? (laughs) Like, it it makes sense why they would just say no. You can't do that. And it maybe was not the right decision, but it does – it makes sense to me. And Mm -hmm. yeah, but I do – I do think it was – it was revolutionary and – and wonderful and taken from us yeah. too soon. I think it's so true. And you don't need to have done that. And for me, I think part of what deepens it, I don't know if you read this as well, but there's a, a kind of novella that, that's maybe been published on its own, but it's also published within a larger collection of books. The novella is called Star Wars A New Dawn. And it's part of a collection of books called The Rise of a collection of stories called The Rise of the Empire. And it tells the story of a He's going by a different name, but oh no, I guess Kanan Jarrus is the name he's going by. Yeah. 
I'm going to, I'm going to take the whole thing out. You know, that, that Kane and Jerris, it's like 10 years after 15, 12 years after, um, a new hope. Sorry. It's like 12 years, 15 years after order 66 and Kanan is living as someone who's cut himself off from the force and he's just a cargo pilot and he's kind of an F boy and he's having fun and he's not caring about anything. And he meets this person named Hera, who's part of this weird group that's trying to do something totally crazy, like fight against the empire. And to me, part of the beauty of the book is she is a big part of what inspires him Mm -hmm. to reconnect with himself as a Jedi. And so I think that does a great job of kind of setting up the idea that his love for her and his reconnection with his Jedi self are never in conflict, Mm -hmm. that she's very much helping put the two together. Yeah. (coughs) And I think also that she doesn't want to be with him if he's not a Jedi, you know, like he's not, he's not the Kanan she loves if he's not trying to save people. And, and I think that that plays a lot into it as well. Like she wouldn't want to be with him if he was just that cargo pilot that he was, who didn't care about anybody or who pretended not to care about anybody. Um, and I think that's so important. And it made me think about, because you brought up how like he's had this like 10, 12 years to, Mm-hmm. be a be a little f boy and like <laughs> pretend not to care about anything but himself um it made me think of the high republic character Cantum Sai who mm, is yeah. Yoda's pad used to be Yoda's padawan and when they were Yoda's padawan um they fell in love with someone and they were honest with Yoda about it told Yoda that they weren't sure um if their path with the Jedi would fit into this these new feelings mm-hmm. and so yeah. yoda allowed Cantum to go and explore this uh Cantum took like the equivalent to like a gap year <laughs> and yeah. and went off and explored this relationship with this person and and it <clears> was <throat> and they describe it as as a beautiful time in their life that they don't regret but it made them realize that they weren't they couldn't be who they were without being a jedi and therefore, they couldn't give themselves fully to this person yeah. because they weren't being who they truly were. And and I think that that was such a beautiful thing that Yoda allowed to happen because it wasn't yeah. forcing – it wasn't saying, no, you can't have those feelings. It was saying, if you have these feelings, then you should explore them before you become dedicated to this way of life. And that's the type of patience and type of time that they no longer have mm-hmm. in the Clone Wars era. Yeah. And I think that is a huge tragedy because you see how much that did for Cantum, how much that strengthened their relationship with the Force and with the Order as a whole. And I just, I wish, I, it's, so, it's so sad that they they no longer yeah. have that after a while. No, I think it's really true. And I admit, as I was reading the High Republic, especially Phase 1, part of me was wondering is like, and maybe with Elzer Mann or maybe with someone else, are we going to see what happens at this time that kind of brings the shift towards, mm, yeah, let's make it a lot stricter, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, <laughs> it, it, so it, it, there's so much more about this book we could talk about. I want to raise one more question, which honestly could probably be a series of podcasts, <laughs> but uh, hopefully we can discuss it in just a little bit and I'll let you bring up a couple other things. I'll say also for our members, um, there's a lot of names that occur in this, including some of the, Various Inquisitors, but also some of the clones that have appeared in other things. Danielle is an expert in such things. We're going to talk about that in the members only section. But to me, a big part of what this break brings up also is that 
one area where maybe the letter of the law is now dominant instead of the spirit of the law is the phrase, there is no emotion, there is only peace. Yeah, and that's when we hear Iscott <laughs> saying to herself again and again and again. And I'm going to get a little personal here, but I'm curious your thoughts on all of it. Like, I remember that when I first saw Star Wars, I bought in hard to the idea of do not let yourself be governed by emotion. And part of that's because I saw at a young age, like my parents fighting with each other all the time at where like because they'd both get angry at each other they'd stop listening to each other mm. and to me that was like the definition of the whole like you know what starting out at dark neither of my parents are on the dark side but you know <laughs> what i mean that like this idea that that if you get too emotional you stop being able to be logical mm. and reasonable mm-hmm. and as a six-year-old in the 80s that made total sense and i think for a long time that was a very strong idea and I think in the last 10 years or so, there's been a lot of like, that's actually a really toxic masculine idea. <laughs> and a lot of this, like, you know, men are more logical and women are more emotional. And we've had a lot more of an idea of, no, feeling you're repressing all of your emotions is actually incredibly <laughs> unhealthy and often going to cause them all to explode, which is exactly I think what happens with this cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so part of what I got from this was a book of like, here's this ideal that was set out. 30 years ago, when 50 years ago, when all this started. And then more recently, we've started to have more authors and shows and books play with this idea of maybe repressing your emotions to that extent <laughs> is not always healthy for everybody. And and again, there, we can say that that's maybe not what the Jedi have always wanted. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm kind of curious about how this idea of there is no emotion, there is only peace. How did that read to you and how it's kind of presented in this book? Well, I was as tired of hearing it as Iscat by then. <laughs> I was <Yeah>. like, God, <laughs> stop saying that. And and I and I won't lie a little bit of that. I was like, are they really saying this over and over and over again? But and they could be, I don't know. Um but I think that it, it you bring up an interesting point of how like what the message of one of the messages, because I think the big that's not the biggest message of Star Wars, but one of the messages mm-hmm. of Star Wars being something that is a bit like out of fashion nowadays and that is that we've thought more about and that we're very we're much more aware of what we say is actually saying you know right how it can be interpreted and i think that if you're a well adjusted person maybe you would inter- interpret it the way that george lucas intended to an incredibly well adjusted person but if you're not, if you're not and that's not to say that that's a negative thing that you're not right. because i'm not well adjusted <laughs> lots of people who are <laughs> um, that you you could interpret it to be something that it wasn't meant to be and and we do have to pay attention to that as well yeah. and be very careful with with what we say and how we say it and I can very easily see how there is no emotion. There's just peace, especially with no feeling behind it and no explanation behind yeah. it would be like, well, what, what does that mean? Like, does that just mean that I'm not supposed to feel anything? Does that mean that I'm just supposed to automatically be peaceful? And I think that is cat would have been helped tremendously if someone had just taken the time to explain to her what it meant and yeah. and and told her like it's not just something that you are it's something that you strive to be peaceful is not it, it's 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 something that you have to work towards and it's going to take effort and it's going to be difficult and it's going to be a lifelong struggle but that doesn't mean that it's not worth it and that doesn't mean that when you slip up that you're horrible um right. it just means that you have to strive for it and 
Um, I don't think anyone took the time to explain that to her. And I think that maybe she would have understood a little bit better mm-hmm. if if they did. See, that's really interesting because I think I, I go a little further there. Because to me, the problem is that they didn't explain. It, it's that the idea is really problematic. Like there is I, – I, I guess to me what I come around – and maybe this is also come from my perspective as someone who did spend so much time trying to repress my emotions. I, I feel like in order to get to a place of peace with your emotions, for many people that doesn't come from a better form of oppression, it comes from finding a safe, controlled, guided with other pe- uh, uh, with other people way to express your emotions, and that that's what she never that and that that phrase there is no emo- even a. a a more broad expression of that doesn't allow room for, no, you are having emotions and that's okay. Don't repress those. Don't fight those, but don't let them control you. I guess, I guess I view it as that is what it is saying to me. Mm. To me, that's, that's how I interpret it is that you are not, you, you don't have to be controlled by the emotions that you feel. The emotions that you feel are not necessarily who you are because you can feel Something you can have absolutely horrible feelings towards someone or something for a split second, and that doesn't mean that that's who you are. That doesn't define right. you. Um, if you can accept that and accept that you are not your emotions, you are something stronger than that. You are something bigger than that. Then that is what, like, that is the goal. Yeah. To be, and so that's how I interpret that line. Um, mm-hmm. And and I interpret it that way because of all of – because of Star Wars, because of, of what I've watched yeah. and interpreted from it that way and and of, from the Jedi Order and from, you know, various books and, and, and shows and, and everything about it. Um, and that's why I think that if, so, if they had – instead of just had this mantra repeating and, and needing to mm-hmm. memorize it, if they had said, like, this is what these – this is what these mean – and because that has that's a part of the the order's main like tenements and so right. i think it just became like like i mean i was raised catholic and so you have the 10 commandments um eventually it comes a point where it's just memory and the prayers yeah. that you pray are just memory there's not really meaning behind it unless you put it there yourself or unless someone tells you what it means and and one of the failings of a lot of places within the Catholic Church is that they don't teach that anymore and they they don't yeah. you know they they just it's just repetition it's not any meaning behind yeah. it and I think that this can be similar this is like similar for the Jedi order yeah. it became repetition it became just a natural part of their lives and they didn't think that maybe they needed to explain this a bit more yeah I I think I definitely hear what you're saying there and we're, we're I think closer than I thought um and certainly like I've gone through uh, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a a really course of helping to learn to control your emotions, and and a big part of it is exactly getting to that place you're talking mm-hmm. about. Of the phrase they often use is that the emotion is a passenger in the car instead of the driver. Yeah. That you're able to sort of notice, be oh, I'm feeling angry right now. Mm-hmm. I don't have to act on that. I'm feeling, I'm worried that I'm not the person people are paying attention to, but I don't need to make myself the center of attention, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, the thing, though, is that I think what that teaches and that what I, I think is implied about what you're saying, but it's never really there, and maybe this is, again, the the difference between the High Republic, is that an essential part of that is you have to recognize the emotion, and, 
like you need to have therapy. You need to have yeah. a place to say, here's this emotion I felt, but instead of just just like it feels like the Jedi want to skip the step and just go to, I feel this emotion, but I'm not gonna let this emotion control me. Now I'm fine again. Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, having a place for all the people to go, hey, all of a sudden you're generals. How do you feel about that? Yeah. How is this, you know, that kind of the Jedi's just needed therapy. They this did. Is the biggest thing. I think they should. And, they should have put a pause on um, any advancements within the yeah. order. Uh, I understand why they couldn't, um, but like ideally, they would have put a pause on all of the advancements, and um, they would have been like the Jedi we have, or the Jedi you're going to get. Senate, um, no one else. <laughs> these younglings are not going to go into into battle. But then we wouldn't have Ahsoka, and yeah, I refuse to give her up. <laughs> <laughs> yep. No, that's fair. That's fair. All right. Well, what are the last things you wanted to bring up before we wrap up? Um, I was going to ask, because uh, we'll talk about the clones and the the members part, but I was going to ask if you think that there might be more books in this series, that there might be a series here for Inquisitor, because it is Inquisitor um, hyphen, or not hyphen, Inquisitor mm-hmm. uh, colon, Rise of the Red Rise Blade. Rise of the Red yeah. Blade. And as we've seen with the fall, the Jedi games, it's Jedi colon fallen order jedi colon survivor and so mm-hmm. i can't help but wonder if maybe del rey which is the publisher of these books and um lucasfilm publishing have plans to tell us backstories of more of the inquisitors yeah i would really love yeah, that me too. Um, as you said like i'd love to get more of toulon's story but this like a lot of times i think novels are very careful to create from whole cloth characters we haven't seen before mm-hmm. so that they're not but a lot of times they don't and you know i think the um as we'll talk about in that member section a lot of the inquisitors we see are inquisitors we've seen from other places and we do get little bits of them. i mean we find out that one of the parts of the the most inquisitors backstories is you have to lose a fight to vader but have him not kill you yeah. just horribly disfigure you yeah. and often that's like why someone doesn't have an eye or some like all the times we saw Inquisitors that don't have that have prosthetic body parts, it's probably because Vader cut them off yeah. or did something terrible to them. Yeah. yeah, I I would really love it if it was. I um, I I want the strike to be over as soon as possible. I don't, you know, but like I I think we can talk about good things can come from a strike, mm-hmm. and I do think that one of the things that I've been hearing is that there is an idea of like pushing more towards publishing mm-hmm. and like getting more of the um, because certainly like I mean. Writing a screenplay and writing a novel are by no means the same thing, but it's similar skills. Yeah. And, you know, those writers can write novels or they can get other people to write novels. And, yeah, I, th- I think this is an unexplored part of Star Wars that I would really love to see more of. I think it's also worth noting that Iscat is the 13th sister. So there mm-hmm. – and I was surprised by that because we we know seventh sister, fifth brother, second sister, ninth sister – I didn't know it went as far as 13 and I assume it might go even further than that. And yeah. so I'm just like, there is, there are so many inquisitors that we've not met even. And I think there's a lot of room, a room to explore a right. different, from a different avenue. Like obviously not the exact same started as a Jedi experienced order 66, whatever, that would be really trite right. and repetitive, but a different avenue would be really interesting. Especially because and I don't know if this was like a weird thing that maybe they cut out some of it to make the book like fit a certain length, but they make a big deal about her cho- choosing a name and that it's a big revelation when she finally tells people what her name is. Mm-hmm. And so when the name was Thirteenth Sister, I was kind of like a little like 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 
I assume that has to mean like it's not just that because there's 12 sisters already and she's the 13th. But like and they also make a big deal. And here's definitely a sign that there might be more. They make a big deal about who Toulon has a new name. Mm-hmm. And we never hear it because she doesn't think of him that way. Yeah. But because of that, we never hear it. Yeah. And like, what <laughs> and is like, his number? We need to know this. The canon right? freaks so it, need to know this. <laughs> it, it felt like there was some buildup that the names had more significance than just being the next in line. But I, so that again is a thing we definitely see explored in their books. Yeah. Yeah. Like why? Yeah. I was a little disappointed that we didn't get the like knighting and I get that they wanted to be like the ultimate, like I'm 13th sister now. I feel like I've earned this name um, that I've been given. But I was like, I wanted to see the knighting of the Inquisitor. Yeah. Because we don't really see that anywhere else, I don't think. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. It's definitely true. And, and it's interesting to me also because, and here again, I'm going to go into some stuff that I know from the EU, the extended universe, but it has been kind of confirmed as canon, even if the details aren't the same. But in the Darth Bane books, which are fantastic, as long as you don't care about silly little details like female characters <laughs> have any meaning or agency, like they're, they're good books, but they're very problematic. But in them, they tell the story of why the rule of two was mm-hmm. created. And, and part of the idea was that in the past, the Sith all did have all this freedom. And so they were constantly teaming up and killing each other. Yeah. And so that's why the rule. And here, like. To me, there's something really interesting about, like, no, there's this much, like, the Inquisitors are killing each other on a pretty regular basis, yeah. just like they were in the Sith Academy that Darth Bane wanted to change. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that, yeah, there's so much here to explore. I, I think we're going to get more books. I really hope we are. Yeah, I hope so, too. Oh, um, also, just, like, a side note, um, is Cat is um, in another canon uh content uh, not by name but her first appearance uh-huh. is in one of the darth vader comics and um nice. i believe that it's the incident with um the baby the force sensitive mm. baby that's what's in the comic so if you're interested in her her uh where she was first introduced uh canonically like for the first time uh that would be in the darth vader comics awesome Awesome. As I said, we'll talk more about that in the member section. Danielle, thank you as always so much for being a part of this. Uh, where can people find your stuff? I'm on TikTok at Written in the Star Wars, on Instagram at Written in the SW, and on Twitter at DannyS394, or X, whatever it's being called these days. Uh, yeah. yeah, I talk about Star Wars and The Last of Us usually. Yeah, all of them are great following uh, uh, for her birthday month in August. Danielle's <laughs> been doing a great series of like book of the day that I've really gotten some good ideas out of. Check all that out. Of course, this is an Ethical Panda project. You can go to The Ethical Panda and find everything about my different podcasts. You can also find me on True Story FM because we are, uh, we've now joined the True Story FM family of podcasts. There you'll find all the contact information. I love feedback. Would love to hear more of your thoughts and feedback. Let us know. Um, uh, please do that. And of course, oh, you can find all the ways to contact us on those different sites. And of course, if you go to True Story FM or just in the show notes, you can find a way to become a member. I'm no longer using Patreon. I'm now using a membership model. It's basically the exact same. For $5 a month, you get ad-free content. You get the bonus content, like the one that Danielle and I are about to record. You get our thanks. And in future, we're going to start doing live uh, live feeds of recordings and stuff like that that you can be a part of and ask questions that we'll respond to live. So a lot of great reasons to become a member. <coughs> uh, and uh, uh, we'll get into that membership section. But have, until then, on behalf of both myself and Danielle, thank you so much. We have spoken.